0: We have been five weeks now, and and how do you want me to say this, Habakkuk or Habakkuk? Who says Habakkuk? Who says Habakkuk? Man, my mom says Habakkuk, so guess what? That's what we're going with. i <laughs> just letting you know. Okay. Um, by the way, great to have my mom with us. She came in last night. I, I guess she decided she wanted to race the hail, so... She was in the storms for most of the journey, finally got to the house, and as soon as she pulled in, I opened up the garage, she pulled in the garage, we went inside, and the storm was coming. She brought it with her, I guess. But, praise the Lord, we got some very much needed rain out of it as well. Now, um, here's what I'm going to do because we're going to finish this book up today. I want to basically back up a little bit, backtrack, I want to give you the background of what's going on, because if you see the scene in biblical history, what he is saying and what he's getting at makes a lot more sense. And it's a lot, I think it's very hard for us a lot of times when we read, especially the minor prophets, it's hard for us to catch what was going on. Whoa. There I am. Uh, it's hard for us to catch what was going on because <clears throat> we, we don't have an appreciation of what was happening in the context of the history going on around him. Uh, So the the prophets in the Old Testament, the section that we call the prophets, is divided up into major and minor prophets. Anybody know what's the difference between the two? Like how much impact they had? No. Literally just the size of the book. That's right. And so it's not exactly like they're in chronological order. And a lot of us, when we first come to the Bible, we first start reading the Bible, we're like, well, I mean, it's like any other book. I'm just going to start at the beginning and I'm going to go to the end, right? And that works fine when you're in Genesis and Exodus, but when you get into the prophets, what happens? You start getting a little discombobulated because that section is actually set up a little differently. And so you read stuff in one prophet, and you read stuff in the next, and you're like, I don't even know what they're talking about. And so what I want to do is kind of give a background to that, then talk about how Habakkuk fits into that, and then talk about some of the other contemporaries. I want you to know uh, Habakkuk was not the only one that was prophesying about this at the time. God told Abraham he wouldn't do anything without first telling his prophets. Guess what he did before the Babylonian exile? Guess what he did before the fall of uh, Assyria and Nineveh? He told his people through a multitude of sources. And yet, many of them did not listen. And they paid the price for it. So, I want to do that. Let's see if we can... Oh, my goodness, look at this. Here is basically a picture of the layout of the land for a long, long time. There are a few different places I want you to notice up here. Jerusalem, way down here, right? This is basically desert, right? The Arabian Peninsula here, mostly desert. Tyre, Tyre and Sidon were up here. Syria, uh, Phyros, Phoenicia don't know how I did that. Asher, Nineveh, and Babylon. So these are the major ones that we're concerned with today. The reason we're concerned with these, originally originally the Assyrians settled in Asher. Originally they were the Ashurians. That's where they got the name Assyria, and then later Syria. The Ashurians. But on the Tigris rivers, eventually they would move their capital to Nineveh, and that's where we kind of pick it up in... The biblical record, okay? Now, let me give you a really a bird's-eye view of ancient history. Roughly 2400 years B.C., Noah's flood ends. 2240-ish, Tower of Babel. 2234, Babylon is founded. I, it is not a huge empire. It's just a little, tiny, little nebulous of people. It's a village at that point. But it would rise to prominence. By 1894 B.C., we have the original... The old Babylonian dynasty. That was the height of Babylon's power. They ruled the earth, the known world at that point, until about 1595. So that's quite a while. For roughly 300 years, they were the prominent power in earth history. And that that period basically would be remembered in the people of Babylon's mind for a long, long time. And that would actually be what helped Babylon rise again to prominence. When, when Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, that was Babylon's second Okay, That wasn't the original old Babylonian province. Old Babylon was founded by the Amorites. In fact, the f- most famous Amorite king gave a very famous ethical code around 750 B.C. Who was that? Absolutely. I love this guy. Can we keep him? Yeah, can we keep him? Uh, Hammurabi, absolutely. Hammurabi gave his his code around 1750. We still have it. He inscribed it into basalt. If you know anything about basalt, it's hard. That was was like a little bit of underplay there. It's one of the hardest rocks you can find. We still have the code of Hammurabi because it was carved into this basalt in the shape of a finger, like seven feet tall. That's a big finger. And it was carved on there because basically this is the finger of my rule. These are the laws of the land. These are the codes. 1750. Babylon, though, eventually would be conquered by the Hittites in 1595. They would come marching down the Euphrates, and they would conquer Babylon. The Hittite dynasty rose from about 1595 to about 1180. They were the dark-skinned descendants of Heth. By the way, very they were kind of a mysterious people. On the one hand, they were great at war, and on the other hand, they didn't like to do it. Kind of weird. They basically go out and clobber you and then say, now look, we don't want to fight anymore. right?" And everybody else is like, good idea, we don't either. So it was actually a pretty peaceful kingdom as far as those as dynasties go. The Hittites ruled. Uh, remember, Heth, by the way, was the second son of Canaan, who was the youngest son of Ham, who was the son of who? Noah. Yeah, we're not very far down the line off the ark, and already we've got war. Crazy, it's, it's as if. People's hearts are depraved. The Hittites would rule until about 1180, and that's where we pick it up. Probably the greatest dynasty to ever be in the ancient world comes to power, to prominence. The Assyrians, the Ashurians, The Assyrians come in, they conquer the Hittites in 1180, and they would rule until 612. In case you're not really good at math, that's almost 600 years. About 570 years they would rule. They are the ruling power for almost 600 years. Now, here's why this is important. When you tell Judah, when you tell the people of Jerusalem, hey, guess what, uh, Nineveh, it's coming to the ground. God's going to judge it. It's going down. They can't even, they can't even fathom that. Assyria has been, look, America has been a world power for what? Not quite 100 years, maybe 80 years? Basically World War II. We think that's a long time. I mean, I can remember growing up in in the 80s and America was a world power and so was Russia. China was nothing. Nobody thought about China. The only thing that people were concerned about was what's Russia going to do and what's America going to do? Because those were the major world powers. We're talking about not 80 years of world dominance, but almost 600 years of world dominance. Assyria is the power player. So when these prophets come along and say, hey, guess what, guys? Nineveh is coming to the ground. God is going to judge Nineveh. Babylon's going to rise again. The king of Babylon's going to come. out. That didn't even make sense to them. There was no king in Babylon. The king was in Nineveh. Hey, the king of Babylon's going to come out and he's going to defeat Nineveh. Hey, newsflash, prophet guy. There is no king in Babylon. He was right. There wasn't. There wasn't a king in Babylon at that time. So, About 760 BC, we start seeing cries against Nineveh. Nineveh had been, the Assyrians had been in power for hundreds of years. By the way, they were very oppressive people. They were very much feared because they were brutal. That's all there is to it. I mean, when Assyria finally comes to the ground, it's not like anybody's coming to their aid. Okay, It's not like, oh, hey, the Medes and the Persians and the Chaldees and these other people that they've conquered are like, let's go help Assyria. They hated the Assyrians. The Assyrians were like the overlords, but they weren't loved, they were hated. They were hated even more than they were feared. And that's that has a play in this, okay? And we'll get into that. About 760 BC, though, some crazy stuff starts happening around Nineveh. There is a total solar eclipse. And I'm going to tell you something, that scared some folks. If you've ever, I, I got to go to my, my first one this last year, so giddy about it. And then there was a bunch of clouds, I got about three seconds of eclipse, it was great. Great. But I will say this, it's spooky. It's weird. The the sun gets blotted out, and what's weird is you can see the horizon all the way around you. You can literally, if it's a clear enough day, which it was for us, you can see the shadow coming at you across across the land. And it hits you, and it's totally dark in the middle of the day. It's kind of freaky. It freaks some people out. Well, guess what? This weird guy, smelling like fish entrails, shows up at their doorstep after this big eclipse and says, Hey, I got news for you. You're a wicked, sinful people, and if you don't repent, 40 days hence from now, you're all going to die. And you know what happens? You know the story. What did they do? They repent. What what, what was that guy's name, by the way? Jonah. Jonah comes around 760 B.C., says to Nineveh, you've got to repent or you're going to die, and they do. And then Jonah throws a pity party about it. I love that. It's, there's, there's so much humanity in Jonah. Jonah throws a pity party. God's like, what are you mad about? And he's like, I knew this was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. I knew you were a loving God and you're merciful. And I would come here and I would preach about you and tell them they have to repent. And they'd repent and you'd spare them. And he's mad about it, right? The only time he gets mad is because the plant that's covering his head dies. Man, that's us. I don't like these people. They've wronged me. God, I want to see you wipe them off the face of the earth. It'll be righteous. And God says, well, instead, I want you to go preach the gospel to them. And we go, well, I will after you wipe them off the face of the earth. One day I will preach love and repentance to them. I think there's a lot of us tied up in Jonah sometimes. I, I, I don't know if you've ever been that guy, but I've been that guy. God, look at ISIS. Look at those wretched, wicked Muslims. And they are wretched, wicked. Wipe them off the face of the earth. And instead God says, why don't you go preach the gospel? I don't know, man. Whew. It's asking too much, right? That's basically what he's saying to Jonah. By the way, when you hear people tell you oh, in the Old Testament, God was the God of Israel. No, that's not quite true. God sent Jonah to Nineveh, the wicked, depraved, debauched Assyrians. And by the way, there were converts from that. There were people from other nations and other tribes and other kindred tongues. It's time for water break. Anyway, there were people from these other nations that came in and And became proselytes, uh, proselytes basically, who started following the Lord because of that. Now, I'm not saying all of Nineveh did that. All of Nineveh obviously didn't do that. Eventually, what happens to Nineveh? They go back to their old ways, right? It does take a while, by the way. Even the king repented. The king and all the people. You want to talk about repentance? Nineveh? They put sackcloth on themselves and ashes and their animals, How serious are you about repentance when you go, oh yeah, I'll I'll take sackcloth and I'll go out and catch my cattle and my sheep and my goats and I'll put sackcloth on them too. I'll show you how serious I am. That's real repentance. That is real repentance. And Jonah's mad about it. And God says to Jonah, there are 120,000 people in this city. That's how big Nineveh was by the 700s BC. More than 120,000 people in that city. That's a huge city in ancient times. Okay, Jonah cries out about it, but eventually they go back to their old ways. By the mid-600s, you have four guys, and these four guys are all standing up. They're contemporaries of each other, Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk. And they're all prophesying slash preaching in Ju- Judah, basically, Judea, around Jerusalem. Habakkuk is probably in the temple. Uh These guys were basically saying all throughout this land, hey, you guys, Israel, you've got to repent. You've got to repent because you're wicked and God's going to judge you. You say that you know God. You have his laws, his word, his oracles, and yet you act like the pagan nations around you, and God's going to judge you because of it. And God, in his mercy, he sends probably the greatest king, the most righteous king, maybe other than David or maybe even notwithstanding David in Israel's history he finds an old book of the law and he keeps the passover for the first time in years what was his name but no Josiah godly king Josiah by the way who had been predicted more than 300 years in advance by name that's pretty good what's Josiah do he leads Israel back to The right ways right he breaks down the high places and the false altars and all that stuff and he's basically got israel worshiping god again that's in that's about 622 was when that happened so this is going on while there's a lot of right at that point 622 there was a lot of craziness going on and here's what i want to get into with you and then we're going to get into this last chapter and why, why it means 640 nahum Prophesized against Nineveh, he makes a number of extraordinary predictions. Nahum, by the way, is right in front of Habakkuk, you might notice. And they were contemporaries. They basically prophesied about the same stuff. They probably knew each other. Nineveh, he said, will be permanently destroyed. It will never rise to prominence again. That was Nahum 1, 8, and 9. The Ninevites would be drunk in their final hours. That was 1, The Assyrian commanders would flee rather than fight. A flood would ha- would be how... Nineveh was helped destroyed. There was a lot of these crazy predictions that he made that came true on spot on the money. And this was about 30 years before Nineveh fell. And he's, he's predicting it verbatim, as if he has literally seen it with his own eyes. Very, very impressive, the stuff that's going on in Nahum. 627, it all begins. Basically, what happens is now Assyria. Assyria is in disarray. Uh, there's a, a king named Ashurbanipal. And here's why you should know him. He created the greatest library of the ancient world until Alexandria under Alexander the Great. 30,000 clay tablets he brings to Nineveh. He was, he was a scholar. He was not just a king. He was a scholar. He was fluent in at least three languages. He could speak and read Akkadian and Sumerian. Besides the other things that he had mastered, he could do high-level math. He was a scholar. He was not a warring king. He was actually a very good king. But he dies in 627, and he's got two sons, and they're wicked. And his two sons both want the throne. So what happens? This is what sets it all in motion. 627, what sets it in motion? For the first time, there's now a king in Babylon again because the younger brother wants the throne, but the older brother got it, right? The older brother's name is Asher. The younger brother's name was Saracen, I believe. The younger brother decides that's it. I'm going to go down, I'm going to take over Babylon, I'm going to be the king of Babylon, and I'm going to amass my power base there, and then I'm going to come back and attack Nineveh, and I'm going to gain the throne. And as soon as he comes to Babylon, another king sees it and says, I'm challenging you for that throne. He didn't know it, Syracuse didn't know it, but down here, you're going to love this, would you like to know what this, this land down here was called at the time? Sea Sea land. You'd think there was like killer whales and porpoises and rides and stuff. But no, it was not Sea SeaWorld. Sealand, sea I, I kid you not. That's what it was called. And out of Sealand, which is down here by the Persian Gulf. That's why it was called the Sealand, right? The Persians are from over here. Thus the name, the Persian Gulf. Yeah, okay. Persians were over here. There was a guy who was ruling all of this down here, this country. And his name was Nabopolassar. Does that sound like somebody you've heard before? Probably so because Nabopolazzar had a young son at the time whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. You ever heard of that guy? You bet you have. Nabopolazzar sees that Sirachis wants the throne. He challenges him to it, and guess who wins? Nabopolazzar. Nabopolazzar sets up his throne in Babylon, and he starts, making, he starts unifying the places around him. It was very, very easy to unify the people against Assyria because by that time, remember I said they were hated more than they were feared? They were hated more than they were feared. And the Medes, who were up here, the Chaldees, who were over here, the different people groups that had been conquered by the Assyrians were very, very ready to get back. And I want you to know something. That included a people group right over here. You want to know why God's people were so mad about some of the things that Habakkuk and Nahum and Jeremiah were saying? They loved hearing, hey, Nineveh's coming to the ground. All right. Nineveh's going to be judged. All right. And I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it. I say, what? What do you think they wanted? Believe it. I'm going to judge the Assyrians. And here's what they're thinking. All right. God's going to make us strong again. We're going to go up there and have our revenge. And it'll be righteous because they hurt us they oppressed us. They did us wrong. We're going to get them back and it's going to be righteous. I'm sure you've never had that thought or feeling. Well, you don't know God. That guy did me wrong. That guy treated me wrong at work. Passed me over for the promotion I should have had. And when I get a chance, I'll get him back. That's not God. That's not a longing for justice. That's a longing for revenge. God tells his people, I'll have justice. I'll get justice. I will take justice on the Assyrians, and I'll do it with the Babylonians. And it didn't make sense to them, and they didn't like that. Why? Number one, how in the world are the Babylonians going to beat the Assyrians? Nobody's beat the Assyrians for almost 600 years, and nobody could. Because as soon as you start a rebellion and an uprising, they didn't just crush you. They did it in such a manner as to make sure everybody else learned a lesson from it, too. They were a brutal people. There's no way somebody could rise against Assyria. That's what they're thinking. Here's the second thing. It should be us to go up there and take revenge, God. Assyria has been oppressing your people. We should be the ones taking revenge. Well, you know what? That's not always God's way of doing it. I think because he knows if it was revenge, if it was, quote, justice at your hands, you'd probably do like an older brother. I'm an older brother. I grew up with a younger brother. We'd get into fights, and if he smacked me, I'd smack him back twice. You know why? One to get even, one to teach him a lesson. That's not justice. That's revenge. You want to go a little bit overboard just to make sure they learn the lesson. And I think God knows that about his people the same way. They still have a depraved heart. I'm going to get justice, and I don't care whether it's the way you like it or not. I am just, I am righteous, and I will do what's right. And so he does. 622, Josiah keeps the Passover. 614, Nabopolassar attacks the Assyrian stronghold of uh, Asher. That's the first time that basically Assyria has been threatened or challenged by anybody in almost 600 years. I mean, it's, an, it's incredible. It shocks the world. Somebody's challenging the Assyrians? Yeah, you know how he did it? Nabopolassar realizes all these people around hate, hate the Assyrians. And I'm just going to tell him, look, I hate him too. Let's get together on this deal. That's exactly what happens. He gets the Medes. He gets, uh, who are some of the others? The Chaldees. He gets the Scythians. He gets a whole marauding band of different people groups. And they all converge on Asher. So the Medes are out here. All these people groups that have been marginalized and been oppressed by the Assyrians, he gets on his side. He gets there. He gets to the walls of Asher. He starts sieging it. He's got a son. The Median king is there. They, you know, what do you do when you siege a place? You just sit and wait, basically, right? You're starving them out. So while they're sitting and waiting, they're chit-chatting. And he and the king from Medea, the Medes, Medo-Persians, they get along pretty well. They say, hey, you know what? Let's solidify our our bond. Let's not come together against each other in war later on down the road. uh, the, The Median king says, look at this. I've got my daughter with me, this beautiful princess with me. And uh says, Well, just so happens I've got a I've got a son that's pretty high wide and handsome. And uh, he's with me, he's leading the army. Let's get him married. They literally marry the two kids together right there at the walls of Asher. How'd you like that? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar. Best siege ever. Went and sieged this place, got me a wife. Right on. He likes this campaign, right? Six twelve finally is the date. That's kind of a big date in ancient history because finally, two years after that. After the, uh, the assault on Asher, they take Assyria and they, do, they take Nineveh to the ground. Guess how they do it? There's a big storm. The, the river, the Tigris River, which is, go, basically goes right besides Nineveh, there's part of it that kind of goes through Nineveh, floods. Weakens the wall. They go through the wall. They attack Nineveh. They take it to the ground exactly as these prophets had predicted, and the route is on. There's a problem. There is a problem. What's the problem? Who's the king of Israel at the time? Josiah. Righteous king, right? Yes. Josiah is a righteous king. And yet, Josiah does something foolish. Assyria had only one ally, and it was Egypt. Long way away. Egypt had a very old king at the time. You'll notice something about kings in history. Typically, if you have a young king, they want to go to war. I'm sure you've never seen this in you know, human behavior, right? It's not 18, 19, and 20 year olds that want to fight all the time, is it? Yes. Older king, he doesn't want war. He wants peace. He wants the prosperity of his kingdom. He doesn't care about spreading it out anymore, taking any new land. But he dies. His son, Nico. Nico comes. Nico's a young man. Nico's like, let's go to war, boys. Assyria says, hey, I need help. The Assyrian king says, hey, I need help. Nobody's going to come to his aid except Egypt. Nico says, well, basically what happens is after Nineveh, after the fall of Nineveh, there's just a skeleton crew left. They flee, just like Nahum predicted. They flee. And they hole up at a place called Haran. And Nebuchadnezzar decides, I'm going to go there and I'm going to crush them, right? So Nico is basically coming up to try to help Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what happens with Josiah. I think Josiah was one of those guys that did the, right, the wrong thing with the right motive. Josiah knew God has stated Babylon is going to rise. Not Assyria, Babylon. And so he gets in the way of the Egyptian army and he says, you guys aren't going to go help him. God has already said Babylon is going to rise and Assyria is going to fall. And the king of Egypt, by the way, Nico, says something to him that was very profound. He says, get out of my way. God has told me to come here. I'm supposed to make haste. And you're now opposing the plan of God. This is an Egyptian pagan. And by the way, he was right. Josiah goes to battle with him anyway Josiah is wounded by uh, an arrow He goes back to Jerusalem He dies from the wound That is probably the bitter lament that we see In chapter 1 of Habakkuk He was Habakkuk's friend Habakkuk loved this guy right. think think of If your favorite theologian Had become the president Would you back him? Tomorrow R.C. Sproul takes office Or John MacArthur, whoever your favorite guy is And not only that But he's taking office just a few blocks down from where you live. I mean, would you be a supporter? Sure you would. When he died, and you have have seen and read the history of wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. Finally, we've got a good one who's leading our people back to God, and he dies. Do you think you'd lament? Do you think you might weep? Yeah, absolutely, they weep. There's cheering going on in Israel. The wicked people are excited as can be because the good king's dead and the righteous are sad as can be because the good king is gone. 608, right on the heels of that, Habakkuk delivers the rest of his prophecy, right? He sees in his mind's eye, he sees the Babylonian exile. He sees now that Josiah's dead, these people are going to go right back into their wickedness that they've been toying with for years. They're going to go right back into their pagan ways, and God's going to judge this nation. He's going to judge us. He's going to carry you off to Babylon. And the people who were the oppressing and the people who were the wicked and the people who were in power mocked at that. They scoffed at that. Babylon's not going to take us into exile Babylon's not coming down here. We're a long way from Babylon. They were a long way from Babylon. Babylon's consumed with everybody else. In fact, Babylon wasn't even at the height of their power yet. I mean, he lost the first time at Carchemish, by the way. Nebuchadnezzar lost. The People in Jerusalem didn't think, oh, well, Babylon's not going to take us. He can't even beat them. Well, guess what? He comes back in 605, and he routs them. And that's the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest figure in ancient history by that time. And then he realizes, oh, yeah, yeah, you, Jerusalem, you don't like me either, do you? You got, some, you got some wealth down there. He goes to Jerusalem. He sacks Jerusalem. He takes a bunch of the people off, right? 586, Jerusalem was conquered. Babylonian exile begins. It lasted for 70 years. That's a long time. Now, that's the backdrop. Are you with me here? When Habakkuk is making his prophecy, he can see that in the future. He can see what's coming down the pike. So can Nahum. So can Jeremiah. That's why he was the weeping prophet. So can Zephaniah. So can a lot of the godly people in Israel. They know this is what's coming. So with that as the backdrop, I want to read this. This is the third chapter. Habakkuk knows we're about to go into judgment. And God, we got a problem here. We got a problem because we're going to have wicked people judged, but we're going to have righteous people that are in judgment too. It's not right, God. Here's his prayer. The prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shagayanath, which is basically saying this entire third chapter is roughly a hymn, a song. Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Here's the star. I'd put a star beside this. I have it underlined in my Bible. In wrath, remember mercy. In your wrath, Lord, remember mercy. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there, was, there he was veiled in his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague came behind him, followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked, and he shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. He's ready to go to war, in other words. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and they writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in great anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of the mighty waters. I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. Of course, you see at the, at the end, to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is a song. What is Habakkuk doing? He knows judgment's coming. And he knows God's people are going to be swept off in judgment. What is he doing? He's basically saying to those. He's saying to Judah. There's going to be a threshing. God is coming to judge. He's going to judge the wicked. And he's going to judge the righteous. And the wicked he's going to destroy. He's going to destroy the wicked with his arrows. And with his spears. It's for their destruction. But for you. For you who are righteous. For you who are waiting on his salvation. For you who are waiting on the anointed one to come. Take heart. He's not going to destroy everybody He's not going to, He's not come for your destruction He's come for your chastisement In wrath Remember mercy Why? Because God's judgment Is always two different ways God's judgment On the reprobate Is for their destruction They will glorify him in destruction That's, that's hard But that's true He will judge the wicked and the righteous. There's no doubt about it. But what about those who hope in him? What about the righteous? By the way, we're not saying they have any intrinsic righteous. They're righteous because they're hoping him. What about the righteous? What can the righteous do? And he's saying this. Wait. He knows how to preserve the righteous. He's the sovereign God of the universe. He knows how to protect the righteous even in judgment. And By the way, he did. Seventy years in Babylon. Basically, all of these Jewish prisoners get to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar could have destroyed them. He did that with some other peoples. You know what he did? He didn't destroy them. It was very much like a smaller version of the Exodus. He basically has a section of the city, a section of the of the land carved out, and he makes it basically Judah City. It's where the Judaizers, the Ju- the The Jews, that's where they lived. He fed them. He gave them grain and oil. You know what else he did? He gave them a great education. When they came back, you know why they had craftsmen among them when they came back from Babylon? Because even in his judgment, even in God's wrath, he remembered mercy for his people. He took them into Babylon and then he used it to make them better, he used it to purify them. He used it to cut away the distractions. He took these people who were his bride, he took them through judgment, and he remembered his mercy. Why can Habakkuk get to the end of the book and say, Fellas, judgment's coming? Everything you see here will be destroyed. Don't get too attached to your homes, don't get too attached to your land. It's all going down. We're not going to live here anymore. We're taken into judgment. And yet, while we're going, we should be singing a song. Why? Because he knew, even in his wrath, God remembers mercy. Even in his wrath, God remembered mercy. If you get nothing else out of this book, if you get nothing else out of what I say this morning, I want you to know this. There will be times you will go through trials there will be times in your life where God will chastise you. Okay? He's giving you a spanking. And Hebrews tells us it's because he loves you. It's not because he's mad at you. God judges the wicked, the reprobate, to their destruction. But you, his bride, his people, whom he loves, he chastises. What for? For your purity? It's actually for your good. For your purity, for your sanctification, to become uh, to grow in holiness, to become more like him, and to learn to rely more on him. That's what. Habakkuk knew it, and you should too. In his wrath, God remembers mercy for his people. Period. Let's pray. God, I thank you that in your wrath you do remember mercy. I thank you that though the fig trees shouldn't blossom or the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food no matter what, that you are our strength and that we can take joy in you and rejoice in you knowing that you care for us. We know that your word says we can cast our cares upon you knowing that you care for us. Father, remind us of that. That when we are chastised, it's not to our destruction, Lord, but it's for our good. It's that we might grow more to be like you, that we might grow closer to you, that we might grow to be more reliant on you, and that we might reflect you better. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the book of Habakkuk, for us being able to learn that by watching what happened to your people. God, we just ask that you would um, indelibly push those... um, those lessons on our heart and on our minds. Let us be more like you today. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.